Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. This is Andrew. And Caleb's here too. And welcome to our 46th episode. And today we're going to be covering Simon Gurdy, or as he was also known, the White Savage. We mentioned a few episodes back Simon Gurdy's name. I think we also mentioned that he's been literally everywhere throughout this series, but we haven't been able to really focus on him because it this guy is so much larger than life that he would kind of suck up the whole story anytime we try to mention him. It's hard to separate the man from the myth, I'll say, because so much was written about him after his death or even while he was alive that was just purely propaganda and fictitious. So it was really difficult to know the real man. Luckily, today we have a lot of resources. We can really see a lot more of the personality of Simon Gurdy than we could have in the past. Now, Simon Gurdy, throughout American history, has always been portrayed as an evil villain. Yeah, he was always a villain in every story. We're going to let you guys decide if he was a villain or not. So, when we're doing a biography on somebody, where do they usually start, Caleb? Normally they start at their birth, or actually their parents' birth a lot of the time. Well, we're just going to start at his birth. Simon Gurdy was born near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania in 1741. And... His father came to America in the 1730s, see? Uh, they were Irish descendants, and most likely their name was McGurdy. Simon's father was a prominent trader in the Pennsylvania area, and he became very well respected among the different Native American tribes because he ran a fair and honest trading post. Imagine that. They did quite well for themselves. Their profits grew rather substantially, and they had a rather large family. The elder of the family, the patriarch, was Simon Gurdy Sr., and he had a son named Thomas, Simon, who we're going to talk a lot about, James and George, between 1739 and 1746. And all these kids are going to actually come into our story because as famous as Simon Gurdy was, and he was larger than life, all of his siblings led extraordinary lives as well. But things were all going well until about 1750 when something happened. That's right, Andrew. George Krogan, we've mentioned him in the past. He's a very prominent citizen of Pennsylvania, holds a lot of power in the government. And the Gurdy family had been squatting on some land in Pennsylvania that had not been approved for settling. So George Krogan and his Krogonies, no, it doesn't really work. I was going to say cronies, but I wanted to mix it. Yeah, I got it. Anyway, George Krogan and his cronies, that's a good band name, they came in and they burned the Gertie estate to the ground. If you're trying to remember who George Krogan is, let's just put it this way. Next to Sir William Johnson, George Krogan is the most prominent Native American British agent in North America. Was he the lieutenant of Indian Affairs? Yes. Okay, that's what I thought. And he primarily ran the Western Theater in the Ohio country and Virginia. Now, to make things worse for the Gertie family, the same year that their home had been burned and they had to relocate, Simon Gertie Sr. fought a duel, and he was killed in the duel, and the details of his death are a little bit hazy at best. What they say happened was that Gertie stood there and that either they both fired their pistols and they both missed, or that Gertie fired up in the air. And then the other guy fired and missed, but then came over and ran Gertie through with a sword. Uh, The guy was apprehended and remanded to the uh, penitentiary system shortly after this. But on top of the Gerties having their house burned down, and now their father killed while you have four young boy children in their new home, before his body is even cold, George Krogan and other high-ranking citizens and enemies of Simon Sr. began a legal battle to take all of his property. People that claimed that he had owed them money are now going to call in these debts and take anything he has, which is going to leave his entire family destitute. And that's exactly what they did. Yeah, they succeeded by doing some shady deals. They got some judges to backdate some things, and they were able to take the entire Gertie estate. After a few years went by, a man named John Turner, for either love or pity, we don't really know, married Mary Gertie, and he basically adopted the entire family. Then a few years later, in 1754, they had a truly blended family because then they had a son named John Jr. So now you got five kids. And you have Simon Gertie, Jr. and Sr., and now you have John Turner, Sr. and Jr. But 
if you remember, 1754 is kind of a pivotal year because what started in 1754, Caleb? The French and Indian War is ramping up at this point, Andrew, and this is what's now central Pennsylvania, but at the time, it was the border of the frontier, the most dangerous areas you could be in colonial America, and they are all settling right there in central Pennsylvania. So John Turner took his newly adopted family to Fort Granville, which is, if you look at Pennsylvania on a map and you stick a tack dead center of Pennsylvania, that's where this is. So when they arrived there at Fort Granville, John Turner joined the local militia under Captain Edward Ward. And I think this goes to show a lot of John Turner's character or maybe education, but he was almost immediately promoted to sergeant, which if you think about it today, you know, it's it's just a... an NCO command. It's not that high up. But in this garrison, you only have two commissioned officers. You have the captain, a lieutenant, and then after him is the sergeant. So of this over 100-man garrison, he was promoted to third in command of the entire fort. But like we said, the French and Indian War is just starting up. And if you remember from our episodes, a lot of raids happened into Pennsylvania and Western Virginia during this time. And this is one of those raids. So on August 2nd, 1756, Captain Ward was out patrolling with the majority of the Fort Granville militia, and the local Lenape tribe, those are the Delaware, knew that the fort was underdefended. So once they realized that the captain was out, they sent a runner to tell the French officer who was in the vicinity, and the crazy thing is, the name of this guy was Captain Francois Couton de Villiers, and I do believe, wasn't that Instant Jumonville's half-brother? So he took advantage of this uh, good fortune, and he attacked Fort Granville with 55 soldiers and about 100 Lenape Indians. Captain Villiers' men crept along the Juanita River, and they sneakily snuck up and set a fire to the stockade. The fire burned so quickly that it made a hole in the fort big enough for the Delaware snipers to begin raining down fire into the fort. And a sniper bullet took out the only other commissioned officer in the fort, which made Sergeant John Turner in command. Shortly after that, the French offered some terms. They said that if they surrendered the fort, they would be given full quarter and no harm would come to them. So Sergeant Turner, in an impossible position, agreed and opened the gate. The militia were out of the fort for the French, and the Delaware went in and plundered it and burned the ground. And what happens next is kind of hazy. We're not 100% sure, but it kind of went down like this. As John Turner and his family were leaving the gate, the Delaware recognized the Gertie boys and Mary. Like Andrew and I said, uh, Simon Gertie had always had a good reputation amongst trading with the Indians, and they recognized the Gertie family. And they had heard rumors through the grapevine. You know, I imagine it came up one day, hey, whatever happened to Simon Gertie? You know, he moved away and... Oh, he was killed by some bad white guy. Yeah, they they heard that he was murdered, which possibly did happen, and they heard that his property was stolen, which most likely did happen, and they think that these Delaware might have put these two circumstances together, murdered, all this property taken, now we see this guy with his family, they think that they might have believed that this was the guy that murdered him, and not only did he steal all his property, but stole his entire family. Another story portrays it kind of from a different angle where there was this um, Delaware warrior named, uh, I think it was Fish, or the, the Fish. John Turner looked like the guy that killed him. Half the people were saying, we need to kill him. This guy killed the Fish. And the other people are saying, no, we need to kill him because he stole the Gertie family. And then they realized, hey, we both want the same thing. So poor John Turner ends up being tortured For three hours, I'm not going to go into what happened to him, but he was tortured and killed in front of his entire family. And if you've listened to any of our previous episodes, you know exactly what happened to him. And so as psychologically damaging as that happens, then what's even more crazy is what happens to the Gertie, now Turner family after this. I'm sure they would have all loved to be taken captive together, but that wasn't to be. Uh, We've mentioned that it was the Delaware there, but there were also other groups for other nations that were there. And so the children and the mother with her newborn baby were all split up and sent with different war parties. So the 13-year-old James Gertie, along with his mother Mary and the baby John Turner Jr., 
they were taken by the Shawnee. And the Lenape kept 10-year-old George Gertie, and 15-year-old Simon Gertie was given over to a band of Mingo Seneca. So now let's try and put ourselves in Simon Gertie's shoes. You're a 15-year-old kid, you've just seen your loving stepfather tortured horribly, you don't know what's going on with your mother and brothers and all that, and now you're being turned over from one group to another to another, and then finally you're led to this Seneca village. Now remember, the Seneca speak a totally different language than the Delaware, unrelated in every possible way. So he doesn't know anything. And then he's led into the village, and he's made to run the gauntlet naked. And he runs through, and they're whipping and beating him, and he's covering his head and tucking his his arms in and runs and gets to the end of the pole and then they lift him up on the shoulders and congratulate him and he's now a member of the tribe and the person that comes over to officially claim him and adopt him is someone we've talked a lot about before, very influential man, and his name is Gaiasuta. The same Gaiasuta that has met with George Washington on several occasions that was very prominent in influencing a lot of the Seneca Mingo into participating in the French and Indian War. He was there personally at Braddock's defeat, fighting with the French and the other allies. He was also involved in Pontiac's uprising, which also was known as Pontiac and Cayasuta's War. So I guess I can't pick anybody else that I'd like to be adopted from. Yeah, he really was the most prominent Mingo chief at the time. And as soon as Simon was adopted, he began his transformation. His hair was plucked one by one until all he had was the scalp lock mohawk on his head. And uh, he was given a dress like the Seneca, a, a breechcloth with leggings, deerskin shirt, and deerskin moccasins. And the years started to roll by. And Simon Gertie proved himself to be more than just tough, because we could see he's tough. He's obviously still psychologically there after seeing all the terrible things he has with his house burned, father killed, stepfather killed, family taken away, runs the gauntlet. This guy must have been built like a concrete wall. But he also shows incredible intelligence. And I say that because he's able to master the Seneca Mingo language but he didn't just master the Mingo language, Andrew. It's believed that he mastered, throughout the seven-year span he spent with them, over 10 different languages and dialects. It's true, a lot of the Iroquoian languages are very similar. You know, it would be very easy for Seneca to understand a Mohawk, even though the, fan the language isn't exactly the same. But these other languages that he learns, like Delaware... That is a completely different language family, Andrew, because that is an Algonquian language family compared to an Iroquoian. So that would be like an American learning Chinese or some Aboriginal language in Australia or South Africa. Yeah, it was just, this guy was obviously a genius in a lot of ways. And what's more amazing is his whole life he was illiterate because growing up he never had formal uh, British schooling. And so he was able to master grammar and not only that, but oratory and especially memorization. He was able to memorize entire speeches that people would give. And this was a common practice that the Seneca and Iroquois would do to educate their children. Since they didn't have a written alphabet, children were expected to memorize histories and things and not just get the basic facts, but they had to repeat verbatim back what the elders told them to make sure that the story didn't change over time. And we've talked about in the past, uh, like carrying the wampum beads to show your authority that you come from someone uh, and you have the authority to represent your nation. It was kind of the same thing as far as memorizing the speech. You're there speaking, you have the wampum beads to show you have the authority, but then you also have the responsibility to exactly replicate what your clan mothers and the other people you're representing back home want you to say. And in the future, this will help Simon a lot because he's going to be used as an interpreter and a delegate to many places. And so you need a guy that's able to not only know all the languages, but be able to say every word exactly as the messenger wants it said. So after these seven years pass back that he doesn't waste, the 15-year-old Simon Gertie is now 22 years old and he's nearing the peak of his manhood. Uh, but even though he looks at himself as being a full... Mingo now, deep in his heart, he's still troubled by some things. And in particular, 
He wants to know whatever happened to his family. He is still saddened that he'll never see them again, his brothers and his mother. And he told himself that in all likelihood they were all dead. Yeah, because you have to remember the Seneca had nothing to do with what happened to his family. It was Delaware and Shawnee that did that. And the Seneca took him in. So he held no ill will against his adopted family. After seven years, we mentioned that when he was taken, it was kind of the start of the French and Indian War. After these seven years, the French and Indian War is over. Pontiac's Rebellion happens. Now, during the French and Indian War and Pontiac's Rebellion, we don't really have any proof that Gertie was involved in this, but we do know Guy Suta was, and he basically become the foster father of Simon Gertie. So uh, that can lead us to think that somewhere throughout this, Simon Gertie most likely was, even if it was in a small way. Now, during Pontiac's Rebellion, Guy Suta and the Ohio Mingo, they were allied with Pontiac, and they fought the British alongside. And they did pretty well. They did at first. Uh, they laid siege to Fort Pitt, which became a huge problem. Uh, and Detroit. And Detroit. They had, in 1763, the Battle of Bloody Run, uh, which was also a big defeat for the English. The Devil's Hole Massacre, which, Andrew, that is the deadliest engagement for British soldiers during the entire war. And Kayasuta was also involved in that. So once all of that comes to an end, in October 17th, 1764... The British and the Iroquois, they made peace. But part of the peace treaty stated that all prisoners must be returned. And not just the ones that happened during Pontiac's Rebellion. All prisoners, whether they were taken at one year old for 30 years ago or two weeks ago. Commander Henry Bouquet, he ordered the Ohio Indians to follow the treaty. He said, the Iroquois Five Nations have approved this. And uh, you guys are involved with this, so I demand that you return all captives, including the ones taken in the French and Indian War. And here's where you run into why this part of history is so complicated. Because in our mindset, okay, yes, they all get to go home to their families. That's great. That's awesome. How wonderful. And it is. But remember, so many of these people have been gone for so long that they've been raised some of the young ones don't even know English. Some of the young women have grown up and fallen in love and married other men. They have children of their own. Some of these younger kids are now prominent warriors in their society, and they're being ripped away from their families. And you could say, well, that's what those families get for taking them. But remember, a lot of these families may have had nothing to do with what happened to these kids. They were just passed off and passed out. And on the other side of the coin, then you put these people back into colonial America and the colonists don't accept them because they don't look at them like they're white colonists anymore. What's up with all these uh, Indian savages all of a sudden? Oh, that's Tommy's son. They didn't even look like them because like Simon Gertie, they'd had their hair plucked and they dressed like them, had their ears and noses pierced. And a lot of the people had to be physically restrained and dragged away from the exchange points. And they had to tie them up and carry them back home. And people would escape in the night and try and get back to their other family. Now, one person that this really upset was Gaiasuta himself. Because Simon had become like a son to him. And he had to reluctantly agree to send Simon back to Pennsylvania, along with 200 other captives most of which had been adopted and were in other Seneca Mingo families. Simon told Gaiasuta that he wanted to stay, but Gaiasuta, he explained to him how this is the only way to have peace with the English and we're a weakened state, so we can't risk pissing them off right now. And he did tell Simon in kind of uh, not-so-subtle terms that, you know, you're a man now and you got to go back to Pennsylvania, but once you get back there... You're of age to make your own decisions, and if you want to come back, you can. But even if you don't, it'd be nice to know that I've got a family member living among the whites, especially around Fort Pitt. So whatever you want to do, you can do. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So in November of 1764, Simon officially returns. He's at the British Exchange, and when he gets to Fort Pitt at the Exchange, he finds a very great surprise because everybody is there. 
That's right, Andrew, his brother James. And Simon didn't even recognize him at first. They had been introduced and he's talking to him, thinking that he's this other Indian warrior that, you know, is just there in town. And he recognizes he has blue eyes. And he starts to look at him closer. And James says, it's me, brother. And they just embrace each other. They both look completely different. They haven't seen each other in eight years since they were young teenagers. And now they're adults and they've been reunited. And the surprise just gets even better because James tells Simon that his mother and his brothers Thomas and George are both alive and they're just outside of town. So they go all outside of town to see their mother. And I can't even put it in words how they must have felt after not seeing your family for eight years and assuming you were all dead. But it was still a little bittersweet, Andrew, because after all these years, at some point, John Turner Jr., the baby, had uh, gotten separated from his mother and nobody had any idea what happened to him. And everybody just assumed they killed John Turner, so maybe they killed the baby too, just out of spite. So they were all still pretty sad about that. But it just gets even better, Andrew. Yeah, because a short time after this, some more uh, captive children are brought in. And there's this one boy that doesn't know any English. And they're going through the line, and the mother looks at him. And she gets down, I'm sure, on her knees and looks in the child's eyes. And then she looks, and she recognizes her dead husband's face on the kid. And she knows that it's hers. And they found the missing, uh, the last missing brother. So throughout all the tragedy in the past 15 years to this family, they've all been reunited, perfectly safe, and together again. And they stay a very close family for the rest of their lives, even though we're going to see a lot of stuff is going to come up for all of them. And even though things come between them, it's, it's kind of interesting. In the story, you're going to have some people side with the English and some people side with the American patriots. But somehow, even though they both have different leanings politically, they're they're always going to stay a close family and look out for family first. So this is where Simon Gertie's career starts to get kicked into full gear because, as Caleb said, he's a polyglot. He knows a lot of languages. He knows a lot of cultures. And interpreters are always in high demand. And so Simon Gertie's traveling back and forth everywhere. He's up in Onondaga or he's back over in Oneida Territory at Fort Stanwix for the great big huge treaty that happened there between the Iroquois and the British. And he also knows a lot about woodcraft and hunting. And so he gets hired by this uh, trading company to be a hunter at Fort Pitt. And shortly after this, he's traveling with a group of men into the Ohio-Kentucky region. And they have a great successful hut. They take down tons of buffalo and deer and... Uh, put the meat into barrels to pickle it and bring it back, and they've got all these hides. But they're kind of trespassing in Chickasaw and Catawba and Cherokee lands. Uh, it's not really a good place to be. And one day they get totally ambushed. Gertie gets separated from the pack. They all run in different directions. He's able to hide around a corner and shoot one of the people that's pursuing him, and he hides for a few hours. And when he comes back out, he finds a lot of his party killed and scalped comes back he finds one of his boats with a rock smashed into it all their supplies are thrown in through a lot of hardship he eventually makes it back home after traveling 300 miles now that simon is back at fort pitt after that huge waste of time going into kentucky uh, after getting nothing but boats smashed and all your hides thrown in the river he took advantage of his languages once again took up the position of full-time interpreter and as his influence grew he became working alongside really prominent people at the time. George Roger Clark, who was brother of, you know, Lewis and Clark, that family. Daniel Boone, what American doesn't love his story. Colonel William Crawford. That guy was on fire. No pun intended. Daniel Morgan. And I believe he's one of the influences for uh, the reliably historically accurate film The Patriot, starring Mel Gibson. It's not... It's still a pretty good movie, though. Anyway, so he's working alongside all these really big-time names at the time in Pennsylvania. And he's fighting with the British during Lord Dunmore's War. Yeah, if you're trying to remember what that one was, that's when uh, Logan the Orator has his whole family killed at the Yellow Creek Massacre in April of 1774 by Daniel Greathouse. 
And Johnny Logan, if you remember, was a great friend to all of the Americans and British and gets really mad when his family's killed in cold blood and starts this uprising. Anyway, uh, the whole war comes to a point at the Battle of Point Pleasant with Chief Cornstalk, and they're defeated, and they sign the Treaty of Camp Charlotte, and Dunmore sends Gertie over to Johnny Logan to tell him to please come to the peace proceedings, and Logan says, I'm not coming to that thing. You guys want to have peace, you can have peace, but I'm not coming. It, Logan, he basically, he admitted that they defeated him, but he took the stance of, uh, I'm not going to come to the peace treaty because, you know, he was he was too heartbroken. His family had been killed. He fought. He didn't even want to fight, but he fought because it was the only thing he knew how to do when his family was killed. Now he's been defeated. He just wanted to be left alone in his own misery. And that's when he gives the famous speech known today in history as Logan's Lament. And listen to our episode on Logan the Orator. It's an incredibly sad and depressing poem, but it's a great example of Seneca Mingo uh, oratory skills. And since Gertie is such a great person at knowing the Seneca language and knowing how to memorize and regurgitate a speech, he's able to bring it back and give it to the British officers verbatim. And this speech ends up becoming a, a favorite poem to Thomas Jefferson, who then reprints it, and it just becomes incredibly famous after the American Revolution. Yeah, back in the 19th century, school children had to learn it for uh, um, their rhetoric classes. Now, at the conclusion of the war, Simon was assured that he would be given a full commission as a captain in the British Army. Ooh. But instead, he was only given a lieutenant's commission, which was then promptly taken away without even a year of him having his name on the commission. You know, they disbanded his unit or whatever. So he really didn't get anything as far as promotion out of it. And this year is the same year in which the American Revolution is ramping up. So initially, his leanings are very much towards uh, pro-American sentiment. And they ask if he will go to Onondaga to bring a peace belt to the Six Nations to try and convince them to stay out of this conflict that's brewing between the British and Americans. The last thing they want is for the Six Nations to get pissed at the Americans, and then, you know, you've got people raiding the entire New York frontier for the next six years. We can't have that happening. Originally, uh, the majority of the Six Nations agreed to if not officially join the Americans, but to stay out of the conflict. And the only people that flat out said, no, we're going to attack you, were the Mohawks. They were, because of uh, Sir William Johnson and the influence that the British had on the Mohawk, they were gun-ho to fight alongside the British. Yeah, so Molly Brandt told the Mohawk not even to show up to the conference. Then we find Simon going to other places in the Ohio country as well. He's going around to the different Western nations and telling them that, you know, Americans totally respect your sovereignty, they have no designs to take your land. They just want them to stay out of the war and for them to plant their corn and hunt their deer in peace. But then we see things start to unravel and become a lot more conflicted for Simon. Even though Simon was out doing all these uh, things for the American cause at the time, whenever he would come back into the colonial towns and cities, he was instantly labeled as one of those engine girdies. We can't trust him. We don't know where his loyalties lie. You know, people glaring at him if he comes into a saloon to get a drink. And he just wasn't welcome anywhere. And on top of that, he was once again told that if he recruited 100 men, he'd be made a captain. So he recruited 100 men. And then he still wasn't given any promotion. And he ends up getting assigned guard duty at Fort Pitt. And the men that he recruited were sent down to Charleston, South Carolina. Now, while he's here in Fort Pitt doing his garrison duty, he starts to hear rumors and hearing people laughing at him behind his back and saying things along the lines of, can you believe Simon Gertie actually believes the stuff that he's telling the Indians that nobody's going to take their land? <laughs> what a sucker. What a gullible idiot. So Simon gets really scared when he hears this because he thought that he was uh, serving the American cause, but at the same time, he still looked at himself as a Seneca Mingo and thought that he was also looking out for the best interest of the people who he is now a child of. So when he hears this, he starts an investigation and he starts to, to look into some of these rumors. 
and he finds out that a lot of the people that he considered close friends and other prominent citizens are already laying the footwork for monopolizing grants on Indian lands. And so this is before the war is even close to being done. Yeah, some businessmen that are just looking ahead, they're saying, hey, if we somehow win this war, then let's have it already on the books that we have rights to any land that becomes uh, part of America. And uh, we're going to see things like that as far as the Phelps Gorman purchase in New York, similar types of groups are putting in bids for these grants that don't even exist for land that isn't even a part of the United States of America yet. And he finds out all this is going on. So on top of him being slighted for promotion several times, now he finds out that there's actually plans in place with these prominent citizens to take his family's land. And he's feeling really convicted and conflicted about this. And... Even still, the historical record's kind of fuzzy because we don't know where he's really at at this point. But we do know that shortly after this, a plot was allegedly discovered naming Simon Gertie as a conspirator to turn Pittsburgh over to the British. And so Gertie and the other ringleaders are arrested and imprisoned in a guardhouse. The other alleged conspirators, I will point out. So as they take Simon Gertie into custody, he tells them they're wasting your time. He says, if I wanted to leave the city, if I was a prisoner, I could have done it. And any prison you put me in is not going to hold me. And they all said, oh, we'll see about that. He wasn't even in there a night when he either picked the lock or somehow broke the door and escaped from the prison. But he didn't hightail it up to Fort Niagara or anywhere. He went out and he slept in the orchard just outside of the fort. And when the sun came up in the morning, Andrew, he walked back into town with his arms up and he said, See, if I was a traitor and I wanted to leave, I would have left. But here I am. And everybody's jaws just dropped. And nobody could say that he was a traitor anymore because if he was, he would have hightailed it out of there. And so they ended up dismissing all the charges. As time continues to move on, a lot of these Western tribes and nations begin to lean more towards the British, thinking that the Americans can't be trusted. In 1777, while all the craziness is happening up in New York, over here in the Ohio region, a guy named General Hand, not General Foot, General Hand, hires Simon to travel to the Seneca town of Kanawago on the Allegheny River. And he wants him to bring a message asking the Seneca to join the Americans in the causes of liberty. So Simon brings the letter for them to read. But the interesting thing about Kanawago is who lives there. Gayasuta lives there. And as soon as Gertie reads this, Gayasuta stands up and he basically says, You're not my son, and turns his back on Simon. Yeah, he says that the Long Knives, that's what their code was that they called the Americans, are treacherous. And uh, Gertie, you're a spy, and you're no longer a friend of the Seneca. And Gertie had already been struggling to keep his mind straight on where his loyalties lie. And now on top of that, his adopted father is essentially disowning him. A lot of the council there gets up and starts to threaten that they're going to tie him and deliver him to the British as a traitor. But since Simon was still somewhat family, they allow him to be under kind of a village arrest. He's allowed to roam around the area as long as he gives his word that he's not going to leave because they still kind of trusted him. Or maybe they were trying to find a way to allow him to leave. Not really sure which. But anyway... After a short time, he mounts his horse, says he's going turkey hunting. And how many turkeys did he catch, Caleb? Um, I, I believe he was going on a goose chase, not a turkey hunt, because he didn't catch any turkeys. He hightailed it out of there. On his way out of Dodge, he came by another Seneca traveler, and he stopped and asked him who he was. And Gertie gave him a fake name, and then the Seneca man responded and said this. You lie. You are Simon Gertie, and you must come with me. Uh, Gertie then turned his horse around and booked it out of there as a guy shot at him. <laughs> he made it back to Pittsburgh in late November and informed the commander that the Seneca are going to join the British. <laughs> I wonder if he left it that short and sweet. <laughs> yeah, they, they declined. It's not like Simon turns one day. 
it's just, you'd think any one of these things would be enough to push him over the edge, but no, General Hand is getting ready to lead an expedition that spring, and he asks Simon to come along as his guide. And as most expeditions into the wilderness go, it's slow and hampered by weather, and then they come up to a town that they think is full of hostile warriors, and they attack. But instead of the town being full of enemies, it was just a bunch of elderly people and a few children, who were not even Shawnee, but neutral Delaware. And not only that, these were all relatives of Captain Pipe, a very powerful Delaware leader. And during the ruckus, Captain Pipe's mother and brother and several of his children are killed. And Simon has to actually step in and save some of the women from being uh, brutally massacred and get everything taken care of to stop any further bloodshed. And here's where you finally see Simon realize that it's true that a lot of these Americans really are just out to indiscriminately kill people because they are making no distinction between a friendly Native American person and an enemy of a totally different family or nation. So this ignoble activity against Captain Pipe's family became infamously known as the Squaw Campaign because there was so much dishonor associated with it that, okay, you went out and you killed a bunch of women and some old people. Great campaign, Mr. Crawford. Great job. And after this event, Simon really starts to lean towards the other side of the fence. In fact, in March 1778, he begins to make predetermined plans. He starts paying off all of his debts. He sells all of his property and puts it in the name of his brother Thomas, you know, realizing that if he defects that, you know, they'll seize all everything that he has. But his brother Thomas was a, a stout uh, supporter of the Patriot cause. So uh, despite uh, Simon and his other brothers fighting against the Americans, uh, Thomas's reputation really wasn't challenged ever. Everybody looked at him and they knew where his loyalties lie. He began meeting with Alexander McKee, who was another very much so suspected loyalist. And he and a group of other men left Pittsburgh and they headed towards the British stronghold in Detroit. Shortly after they left, a few hours later, a party of American soldiers arrived to uh, arrest them, to take them to Pittsburgh and put them in prison. But they were gone. Pretty good timing. Yeah. On their way to Detroit, they stopped by the village of Coshocton which was the main city of the Lenape. And after Captain Pipe learned about the murders of his mother and brother and other relatives, this really split the Lenape's loyalty. Captain Pipe was really calling for war against the Americans, while the other Delaware leader named White Eyes really wanted to still try and keep peace as much as possible because he knew what kind of devastation could happen if they side against the Americans and the Americans win. While Captain Pipe and White Eyes are having this discussion, Simon Gertie stands up in the midst of the council and he makes a pledge for war. He says, I'm with you guys. Uh, I will fight with you. Uh, my rifle is yours. And he tells them not to trust the leaders at Fort Pitt. He kind of says all the right things on how he was betrayed and how he believed it. And he found out they were liars. And now he's going to tell them not to make the same mistakes he did and trust them. During this conference as well, his brother James shows up and Simon convinces him to defect as well. And James was actually bringing trade goods sent from Fort Pitt to distribute to the Native Americans. And James just turns the whole supply wagon over to, uh, to the Delaware and to the British agents that are there. A short while after that, his brother George also shows up and he also defects. Back in Pennsylvania, hold a trial where they accuse them all of defection and treason, and they charge them in absentia. They're all guilty, and in particular, they put an $800 bounty on Simon Gertie's head. Over time, that bounty is only going to grow bigger and bigger. So Simon Gertie continued on his way to Detroit with a group of Wyandotte warriors led by Leatherlips. That's a very flattering name. But on their way, they bumped into a band of Seneca on their way to Detroit as well. They recognized Gertie and instantly assumed that he was a spy for the Americans, and they demanded that the Wyandotte turn him over. He explained, on the other hand, how he was lied to by the Americans, and he realized his mistake, so he's here now to fight 
with the Seneca. On April 20th, 1778, Simon Gertie reached Detroit, where Henry Hamilton employed him. At a conference that June, Hamilton told the Seneca that Simon was now a valued member of the fight against the Americans and they should stop trying to uh, arrest him. Then Gertie and his brothers spent some time at Sandusky in the Ohio country. And in early May of 1781, a certain Mohawk man showed up. It was our old friend Joseph Brandt, who Andrew and I have just spent four months researching and uh, talking about in various episodes. Uh, So they had come face to face, and they began working together, coming up with plans to repel an invasion that George Rogers Clark is planning against them. And we touched on this briefly from Brandt's perspective in our final Revolutionary War episode, but we're going to just rehash it really quick so that you can remember what exactly transpires. During this event, uh, Simon is going around the region trying to raise reinforcements while his brother, George Gertie, is back with Joseph Brandt. They realize that Clark is on his way and they can't wait any longer for other reinforcements to arrive, so George Gertie and Brandt set out to try and intercept Clark. When they arrive, they see that Clark's men are a bit bigger than they can handle, and they realize that we don't have enough men to take them on, so they let them pass through unmolested. But shortly after that, they capture some men who were trying to chase down Clark, asking for supplies for their smaller force that was bringing up the rear, led by the commander Lockery. And we humorously mentioned that in the notes that they were carrying, it said, please send back gunpowder because we're almost completely out. Brandt and George Gertie took this opportunity to lay into Lockery's troops, and it's a total success for Gertie and Brandt. They have no casualties, and all of Lockery's men are killed or captured. And then a few days after the victory, Simon finally shows up with about 300 men. They try to join back up together and track down Clark, but he's already too far gone. And so they decide to sit down, pop open the beer cans, and uh, celebrate for a little bit. And that's when things kind of go south. A lot of people get really drunk, and Joseph Brandt was one of them. And the more drunk that he got, uh, he started to do things that drunk people do. He, uh, he started screaming and yelling and bragging about how great he was and how brilliant of a leader it was and how it's all due to him and, and his uh, strengths and courage. He does it in front of everybody, Andrew, including Simon Gertie. And Simon Gertie, he uh, drinks quite a bit himself, we see, and he was not really enjoying the things Brant was saying, particularly because he felt it was his brother George who had planned this entire attack. George was in the front row, and he was the one that was risking himself in order to, to lead this attack. And now, all of a sudden, everybody is bowing down to Joseph Brandt, telling him how great he is. Yeah, this interloper from way out in Mohawk country, way over here, who does he think he is? So Simon calls him out on it, right to his face, In front of everyone, he just starts yelling out, you are a liar, you had nothing to do with this. If anything, you were probably hiding in the bushes while we were out walking there. And you could have heard a pin drop, Andrew. Even though everybody's drunk and celebrating, everybody just shuts their mouth because you just have this renowned Mohawk war chief, Brant, who everybody knows, and then you've got Simon Gertie, the white savage, And uh, nobody knows what's going to happen next. But then, to the surprise of everyone, Brant simply turns his back and walks away. Maybe he was remembering what his mother told him. And, you know, sticks and stones could break my bones, but words never hurt me. He just turns around and silently walks away. Yeah, well, that motherly advice didn't seem to last for long because what happened next? So later that night, Andrew, as uh, the campfire was starting to calm down and burning away and everything, people were going back to their tents. Gertie was still there by the campfire. And Brant walks up through the darkness with a heavy saber sword, swings it with all his might, and brings it down directly on his skull, cracking his skull and spewing blood everywhere. Gertie dropped like a bag of potatoes. Uh, To everyone's surprise, he wasn't killed instantly. A Wyandotte doctor was there, and he was able to stop the bleeding. And as they're going through his head, they're picking out bone fragments. 
they're like, okay, he may be alive now, but this dude's going to die. No question. I mean, the part of his brain is exposed and his skull is split. Alexander McKee orders Brant to stay put and not go anywhere and says, if Simon dies, you'll hang. Brant, the next day, once he's sobered up, is incredibly remorseful. Probably because he doesn't want to die, but I'm sure he probably felt bad as well. He begins literally crying and sobbing and apologizing profusely, uh, blaming it on you know his inebriation, his drunken behavior, saying, that's not me, I didn't mean to do it. But what happens to Simon? Simon is in for a very long and painful recovery. For months and months, he held on to life. And even months later, people still didn't think there was a chance of him living, Andrew. Somehow, though, after a 10-month recovery, he slowly starts to get his speech back. Because even once they start to realize that he might live, they think, oh, he's going to have permanent brain damage. He won't be able to walk. His, so his speech starts to come back. Then his strength starts to come back. Then he's able to walk around camp. And eventually, he comes almost back to normal. I say almost because for the rest of his life, he was going to be plagued with periodic blurred blindness, basically. He'd just be walking along, and whatever got damaged in his brain would shut off to his retinas, and he would go blind. And also, uh, he would have terrible headaches for the rest of his life. And that was just the internal problems, but on the external, it also left his head and face permanently disfigured. He had this huge scar that came over his skull and then down part of his face. What he began to do was take a red bandana and he would tie it over the scar. Picture what a pirate would look like, and that's kind of how he had it. And he would wear that red bandana everywhere, and so it kind of became the trademark look for Simon Gertie. He always wore the red bandana to cover his scar. And it just added to the legend of Simon Gertie because freaking Joseph Brandt couldn't even kill this guy by splitting his skull in half. How tough must this guy be? One major event that happened while he was incapacitated, however, was the massacre at Naudenhuden. We covered this fully in our last show. Caleb and I really don't want to talk about it much more because it's just a horrible event in American history. Close to 100 innocent Delaware Christians are brutally massacred, and this is all while Simon's in the background. But this event sets forward some more dominoes because this fully enrages all of the Native Americans in the Ohio, Kentucky, and Canadian country to realize that the Americans cannot win this war because they realize that what will happen to us, we could be literally exterminated and wiped out. On the Western frontier, a lot of uh, Americans really kind of applauded Williamson for attacking these uh, horrible Delaware Christians. But back in the East, when newspapers heard about it, they were absolutely uh, enraged and appalled and called it a senseless, cowardly act. George Washington was upset about it as well and said that Williamson pretty much made a mess of everything with the Delaware. And he starts giving out orders to the frontier militia saying, look, guys, don't get taken alive by the Native Americans because uh, they're going to be angry and they're going to torture you all to death. And that's what leads us to the infamous Crawford expedition. So the end of May 1782, William Crawford leads a force of about 500 militia to attack the Sandusky area. And that's really the hotbed of the Wyandotte, Delaware and Shawnee at this time and also a staging area where the British are sending out these raids. We're not going to go into huge detail about this campaign because we just plainly don't have time. There's just so much going on. But suffice to say that the Native American peoples and about 100 British soldiers end up confronting Crawford as he's advancing. They rout the Americans over several engagements, and Simon Gertie was one of the ones leading the British men during this uh, event. On June 7th, Crawford becomes separated from his main group of men, and they're just scattering every man for himself, trying to run away. And Crawford comes upon a party of Delaware, several miles, many miles removed from the battlefield. Uh, his companion next to him raises the gun to shoot at the Delaware, but Crawford tells him not to fire, saying that I recognize some of these Delaware and I want to talk to them. And he said, I know their leader named uh, Chief Wingnud. That's his name. Don't, don't give me any funny looks. 
Crawford and his uh, companion, a man named Knight, were taken prisoner. And in all, about 70 Americans die out of the 500. Now, the second in command of this expedition was Williamson, who was the mastermind at the massacre at Naudenhuden. And he escaped back to Bingo Bottom totally unharmed. In fact, Williamson was almost made the commander of this expedition, but he lost by five votes because people thought that it wouldn't be a good idea to have this you know, Indian killer as the, the head kind of guy. And that comes back to fight Crawford because the Delaware instantly begin blaming him for the horrible attack at Naudenhuden. Crawford claimed that he had nothing to do with the massacre, which he didn't. Others accused him of leading men that had taken part of the butchering of the Moravians, which there was truth to that. Captain Pipe stands up, Andrew, and he declares in front of everyone that Crawford is the man that was in charge of the Squaw campaign and led it. Which is true also, although Crawford tried to stop the bloodshed once he realized what was going on. But that didn't soothe Captain Pipe. Crawford is really in some hot water here, and it's looking like nobody's going to speak for him, uh, even though he, in some ways he was innocent in a lot of these charges. But Gertie stepped in to intercede. And we see Gertie do this a lot. Uh, he begs and pleaded with the Delaware, asked them if they would be willing to ransom him or spare him, but they weren't going to have any of it. They wanted somebody's blood to atone for the murders that were done. And Gertie even offered, oddly enough, to switch places with Crawford and make himself their, uh, their prisoner. But they didn't want him. They wanted Crawford. So Crawford was painted black, which was uh, a ceremonial ritual. Uh, When someone was marked for death, they would be painted black. And then he was put through terrible tortures. His ears were cut off and burned and branded. And he begged Gertie to shoot him, to end the pain. It kind of reminds me of that scene from Last of the Mohicans when uh, Duncan is being burned by the Huron. The long carbine can't shoot him in front of everybody, so he goes a couple hundred yards out of the woods where nobody will see, and then he shoots and kills him, so nobody realizes he's been shot. But Simon couldn't do that because that was part of the the penalty, was the pain that you had to go through. So Gertie felt like he couldn't do anything, and Crawford was scalped and burned and killed. The thing about Crawford was he was actually a very good friend of George Washington. And so when word gets out, uh, this event makes headlines all throughout North America. And unfortunately, it reinforces this stereotype that all Native Americans are bloodthirsty, torture-happy, savage Indians. You know, the exact same thing that's going on the other side. Uh Yeah, because what did the Americans do at Naudenhuden? They did pretty much the exact same thing that happened to Crawford, except they were, you know, civilian men, women, and children who were pacifists. Crawford was a military leader engaged in an attack against their own people. So it's war, people. Atrocities are committed on both sides. The sad thing is that the the big travesties always happen when uh, the innocent are killed. And I think none of us would shed any tears if the guy that massacred the Moravian Delawares got his comeuppance here. We might just... we'd be cheering... You and me, we'd both be cheering him on. Yeah, yeah. But we see uh, somewhat innocent... I don't want to say innocent because, you know, he's a war leader. So, you know, I'm not going to try to get into, you know, what's a sin and what's not in war. Yeah, Crawford did things that were not good. But we see somebody who didn't really deserve the whole penalty take it because of something somebody else did. Things kind of continue. This year of 1782, kind of in the West, became known as the Bloody Year just because there was so much stuff going on. That July, Gaia leads about 100 uh, Native Americans with a few British volunteers into Pennsylvania and they attack Hannahstown. But things then begin to wind down. The Realize that the war is coming to a close. The British and Americans are negotiating back in Europe. And then the Native Americans find out that they were cut totally out of the peace negotiations. And the British are pretty much cutting off all military support. And they're left on their own. And the war is over. Which is 
a real disappointment for all of these native nations because even though the americans bested the british in the rest of the campaign as far as the wilderness war it was a stalemate at best so they didn't feel like they were losing they felt like they could keep fighting as long as they had to and now all of a sudden the british are telling them that they're pulling out and they're not going to be able to give them the, uh, the guns and gunpowder that they had been giving them for years they feel completely betrayed and all of a sudden, these different nations that are uh, allied against the Americans are all going to be forced to look out for themselves and try to get the best deals they can individually with the Americans. And there's going to be several things that pop up. We'll mention them really briefly in a bit, and we may mention them more fully in a future episode. But during all this war, Simon still finds some time for some romance. This story here, Andrew, is like, straight out of your stereotypical Hollywood romance movie. Once the war is winding down, Simon gets approached by a, a wealthy father of a kidnapped daughter, and he asks Simon to go and deliver the ransom and bring back his daughter. And Simon agrees, you know, you hear there's this young, beautiful woman that needs to be ransomed who wouldn't step up. And he he gets there to the village, and he sees this woman, and she's just... In the flower of womanhood, she's 19 years old, beautiful blonde woman, and he ransoms her. And he's a a full-grown man at this point. He's in his 40s. And as he's bringing this young woman back to her father, she falls madly in love with Simon Gertie. And they end up getting married. Things that they have in common is she had actually spent a good chunk of time with these uh, Native Americans. And so she kind of identified what Simon went through as well. At the end of the war, Simon and Catherine set up a homestead in Canada on the other side of the Detroit River, just south of Windsor, Ontario, which, did you know this, Caleb? It's the only place in North America where you can go south to get to Canada. I did not know that. Well, there you go. What about Alaska? No. You can't go south to Canada from Alaska? What do you mean you can't go south? You can't. You can't go straight south. Well, you can't go straight south, but you could go southeast. Southeast is not south. Okay, okay. Whatever. It's the only place where you can go due south okay. and get I to Canada. I didn't understand what you were saying. Okay, now you know. What if you went all the way around the South Pole? Well, then you'd be going north once you got past the South Pole. <laughs> Today's geography lesson is brought to you by... Simon and Catherine have several kids together, but their marriage becomes kind of strained because Simon continues his drinking and it becomes enough for her after several years and eventually she moves out. Simon still finds himself getting called out to do different things. In 1791, he's there to defeat Arthur St. Clair, the American general, at America's worst defeat in military history. And we'll talk more about that another time, but too much to get into that right now. And he's also present at the Battle of Fallen Timbers with uh, Mad Anthony Wayne in 1794. But again, that's for another time. Even after all this, the British have kind of still been holding on to Detroit. They were supposed to give it back after the end of the American Revolution, but they kind of just held on to it for safekeeping for another 15 or so years. Finally, the British are going to be turning it over to the Americans, and it's the final day when the turnover is going to happen. And Simon Gertie's sitting in Detroit in a saloon, drinking. And he knows that the Americans are coming to take it over. And he knows that the Americans know that he's there. And they would love nothing more than to capture him and bring him back with a rope tied around his neck. So he waits until the Americans are walking down the street. He comes strolling out of the bar, pissed drunk, looks at him, turns around, mounts his horse, and starts galloping away full speed heading towards the Detroit River and runs out onto a pier where he proceeds to jump with his horse off the pier into the river and then proceeds to, while staying on his course, swim all the way across to Canada. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen the Detroit River, but it is the outlet for three of the Great Lakes. It's a very, very, very wide, huge river. And the Americans are just standing there at the end of the dock, dumbfounded, because Simon Gertie... The freaking white savage has eluded them again. And he'll even spend time sneaking back and forth down to uh, Pittsburgh to visit his family after this. Later in his life during the War of 1812, he had 
fully moved with the Mohawk for safety, and he stayed there for several years. Joseph Brandt had died by that point. The Americans were crossing the Detroit River to burn Canadian buildings. But when they got there, they came up to Simon Gertie's home, and one American man stopped them, a guy named Simon Kenton, and he told the soldiers, don't touch it. Now, why was that? Because this soldier was one of the many soldiers throughout Gertie's life that he had interceded for after he had been captured. Gertie had stepped in and stopped him from being burned and tortured to death and worked to get him ransom and release. Gertie had done this more than a dozen times throughout the Revolutionary War. So this was just one of those soldiers that appreciated what Gertie had done for him and he wasn't going to let them burn his house. After the war, he was able to return home, but by this time he was totally blind. He kind of sat out his twilight years. What he would do is in the morning, he would mount his horse, he'd go down the hill, into town, to the saloon, sit down, drink and tell stories, and in the evening, stumble out, climb back on his horse who knew the way home, and take him back to his door. I wonder if this was the same horse that swam across the river. I don't know. Sounds like a pretty good horse if it could swim across the river and you can lay on it drunk and it just knows to walk back to your house every night. Uh, Towards the end of his life, his wife ends up coming back and she takes care of him until he dies in 1818. So Caleb, to the Americans, Simon Gertie at the time was worse than Benedict Arnold just because... The propaganda that was spread about him being the white savage, that he was heartless, that some people even claimed that he was egging the Indians on to burn William Crawford, and all these kinds of things popped up in his life, and to Americans, he was the devil. Yeah, he was he was worse than Benedict Arnold in a lot of ways because people didn't fear Benedict Arnold when he betrayed America. He was just a turncoat. Simon Gurdy was the type of guy that you would tell your kids that they better behave or Simon Gertie will come through the window and kidnap you. Yeah, there's actually a phrase, that a little rhyme that the parents would say, and here it is. You better be good, dirty, dirty, or Simon Gertie will get you. But we can see that, like many people, not only in history but in real life, they're a lot more complicated than what the newspapers publish about them. One thing I'd like to point out, Andrew, they call him a traitor. But he looked at himself as if he was a Seneca Mingo. So he never swore loyalty to the American cause. He fought for the Americans when he thought it was in his country's best interest, his adopted countries. And as soon as it ceased to be in their best interest, he decided to fight for the British. So I don't think you could really call him a traitor. But Benedict Arnold's still a scumbag, right, Caleb? (laughs) Yes, Benedict Arnold's still a traitor. So we hope that you all have appreciated uh, this episode. I have one correction I want to point out, Andrew. A few episodes back when we mentioned Simon Gertie, when he was just a passing character in an episode, I mentioned uh, a romance novel. And there were lots of these romance type of fictional novels in the early 1800s that had Simon Gertie. And he was always the villain. And he was always the villain. I had said a couple episodes back that one of those books was Simon Gertie, Wilderness Warrior. I actually got the names mixed up. It was Simon Gertie, the the White Savage. Uh, Simon Gertie, Wilderness Warrior, is actually a very good, well-written biography. So if you see that on Audible, this isn't a plug or anything, but I highly recommend the book, uh, and it's historically accurate. So it's not just one of those uh, fruity love stories from the early 1800s. So I just wanted to correct that, because with my luck, the author would... uh, listen to our podcast, and then uh, think that I was bashing his book, calling it a romance novel. When actually we used like 80% of the episode content based on that book. (laughs) Be sure to like us on Facebook. Uh, Why don't you tell them how they can join the Wild Sweet Potato Clan, Andrew? Well, if you've listened to any of our episodes so far, you know that all it takes is to get an iTunes account and leave a review. A positive review. Yes. We strive for excellence in the Wild Sweet Potato Clan, and so excellence is six stars. And we found out that you can't leave a six-star review, so five-star will suffice. We also have uh, some really exciting news for you clan members only, or if you want to become a clan member, that's cool too. Uh, But we are having some merchandise made, and we are not setting up a store that you can buy this. It's Andrew and I's goal to 
Give every member of the Wild Sweet Potato Clan a special gift. Some coffee cups made that say Iroquois History and Legends with our logo, and it says Wild Sweet Potato Clan member. We want to send you one of those. Uh, we have a limited supply right now, but our goal is to get one to everybody. So what we need from you, if you are a clan member, is uh, your information. So if you are a clan member and you've left us a review, please shoot us an email at longhousepodcast at gmail.com. Please leave your name, address, and your username so we can see that you left us an iTunes review and you're a real member. Like I said, we have a limited supply right now, so we're probably going to start this by doing like five a week with a random drawing. Uh, but we can't do a random drawing until we have your addresses and know you know, who actually wants one. So please send that to us. If Whoever listens to this first, it's first come, first serve right now. So, uh... And please do not write us and say, well, I'll buy one. Because we said from the start, we are not selling any merchandise. And we're still not. So we're sorry. And that might just make you want to have one even more. But we are not selling this merchandise because we said that this show is for free. So don't ask us. <laughs> but thank you for listening. You can also follow us on Twitter with the handle at Iroquois History. And feel free to contact us anyway on social media. We love to hear from you. Please feel free to comment and like anything that we post. Anything else? We cover everything? We never cover everything. There's so much more to the story that we have. You guys don't know how much we have to cut out every single week because... It just doesn't fit with the flow. And it's very disappointing, too, like when you spend three hours researching something and then you have to condense it to two paragraphs because you realize you're just rambling. You know, people are going to lose interest. The toils of a podcaster. Thank you very much, everybody. We are going to be seeing what's going to happen to the Iroquois and the other Eastern Indians post-Revolutionary War coming up soon. And we also may have uh, another special show coming up for you soon, too. So you'll have to watch out for that. Thank you.